Hi, this is Al Otto, and I am here with Bruce Ashton. From Hi, everybody. Uh, Bruce, I hope you're doing well today. Just living the dream. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> and we're all living the dream here in, in the uh, the COVID arena, right? And exactly. Uh, you know, we're we are just so honored today really to, to have you really to talk about trends uh, with 457 B plans in California and uh, for those of you that don't know Bruce he has 35 years uh, of legal experience at least and uh, you know I've known Bruce a long time and uh, I, I am uh, he is an esteemed uh, legal counsel to registered investment advisors, to record keepers, to uh, plan service providers, uh, broker dealers, insurance companies. Uh, I, you know, I, I think, Bruce, at some point, you've probably worked with everybody on every side of the chain. Um, but you also, as I understand, you both advise and defend fiduciaries on their, uh, their obligations and liabilities. And we're going to talk about that a bit today. Um, and you work with both public sector and, and uh, private sponsors to negotiate resolutions uh, of plan qualification issues. Um, I'm just excited to be talking to you, quite frankly. Well, I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Cool. And this is a, an interesting topic that we're going to cover today. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's it's a little bit esoteric until you realize how many people are employed by governmental entities all over the country and especially in California. Exactly. Uh, this, this is going to affect this affects a lot of people. So, um, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna jump right in now. Now, Bruce, you wrote a paper uh, a while back. Uh, called fiduciary duties and obligations in administering 457 plans under California law. Now you wrote that a while ago. Um, what's different? What's changed? Well, frankly, not much. And um, I went back and uh, looked at that paper again and was very impressed with how wonderful it was. But uh, <laughs> uh, I also uh, took the opportunity to. Uh, look at the the state of the law in California just to see if anything had really changed and frankly uh, in terms of the the legal requirements under California law they really haven't changed and and maybe it's appropriate at this point to talk about why we're just talking about California law and it may be that the members of the audience are already very well aware of this but uh, you know, the, the main law in the U.S. dealing with uh, retirement plans is ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, and it's a federal law. But that federal law specifically says it does not apply to governmental plans. So that means in terms of uh, 457 plans, for example, we look to the state law with respect to issues that are not covered by the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, so in California, there's a specific uh, government code section that says that uh, 457 plans are uh, subject to some rules under the California Constitution. 
And that may sound uh, a little bit weird if you're not already aware of it, but the California Constitution has a provision that is really quite similar to the fiduciary provisions of ERISA. And it basically says that the governing body of a, of a plan, including 457 plans, uh, have a duty to invest the assets of the plan. They have a duty to administer the plan. Uh, and they have a duty, and this may sound for people that are maybe somewhat familiar with ERISA, this is going to sound exactly like ERISA, and it's in fact modeled after the ERISA provisions. They have a duty to act for the exclusive purpose of providing benefits to the uh, participants. And it also goes on to say, in words that are almost exactly identical to ERISA, that they must engage in a prudent process for uh, making all decisions, uh, especially regarding investments and services. So uh, those are the, the main duties. Mm -hmm. uh, administer the plan, um, act for the exclusive purpose of providing benefits, and act prudently. So in, in making decisions. I know that um, certainly the, the, the duties and obligations sound to be very, very similar. Are there things in ERISA that are key that are not also included in the, the California law? There are some, and uh, maybe it would be uh, good to talk about some of those a bit later, but there are some some differences, uh, for example, in, in the concept of brokerage windows and that sort of thing. Uh, but for the most part, they're, they're very, very similar under ERISA and California, the California constitutional and, and uh, state law provisions. One other aspect of, of this, this fiduciary duty that I need to mention up front is that there's a provision in the government code that also reminds the governing bodies that not only do they have these obligations to act prudently at the front end, but they also have an obligation to revisit their decisions periodically. And we refer to that as the duty to monitor. Right. The, the the prudence requirement says that you have to act prudently under the circumstances then prevailing. Well, what that's getting at is circumstances change, and that means you need to revisit your decisions periodically, including decisions on what investments are being made available uh, and what uh, uh, what service providers are being used or potentially even renegotiating with service providers if you're happy with the service, but you might want to look look at the uh, costs that they're imposing on the on the plan. Right. Well, so uh, operating a, a plan under, in essence, under ERISA regulations, um, that's not that's not a, a normal or usual thing elsewhere in the country for governmental plans. What are some of the issues that you see come up? Well, you know, I think the the issues that I want to talk about, sort of the the current issues, um, we're seeing a lot of, and we have seen in the last decade and a half to two decades, and a substantial uh, explosion almost of of litigation involving plans and 
there's a very well established uh, plaintiff's class action bar that that uh, brings these lawsuits and they're they started out mainly involving 401k plans mainly involving very very large billion dollar plus plans but over the 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 period since these cases first started they've both expanded the the types of uh, uh, plans where there's litigation, uh, and they've also um, come what I'll call down market to smaller plans. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the main issues that's that's looked at is cost, mm-hmm. and the, the claim has been that the uh, plan fiduciaries, in the case of a 457 plan, it would be the governing body, uh, has not acted prudently in terms of making sure that the costs that are borne by the plan and therefore by the participants in the plan are are reasonable, are, are favorable to the participants, that essentially the argument is you you fiduciaries have permitted the costs to be too high, and the effect of that, obviously, if if that is true, is to erode the retirement savings uh, in uh, these types of plans sure. uh, for the for the participants at retirement. And and so basically, the one of the issues that I think people need to be aware of, even if this isn't um, necessarily specified in the law or even if there hasn't been specific litigation against uh, very much litigation against 457 plans, there is this issue of uh, watching the costs that are being borne. And when I say costs, what I mean is the the, the costs of the investments, what's it, what are the internal costs of the investments, uh-huh. uh, and uh, what are the costs being paid for services. And uh, the, those need to be reviewed periodically under this monitoring concept. And um, one of the, the best ways to review those costs is to, to get what's referred to as a benchmarking report. That mm-hmm. is a report that, that takes data from uh, thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of plans around the country and compares the services versus the costs and the investments versus the costs. And um, look, using that to look at then what's going on in the, the uh, uh, plan for which you're responsible and saying, well, gee, am I overpaying for these costs? Can I get a better deal? Should I be looking at different investments that have a lower cost? Right. So that's one of the, one of the current trends that I think people need to be aware of. Another one that is starting to become a trend, if you if that makes sense, uh, is um, looking at the participant data in the plan and saying, gee, if the plan permits service providers to make use of that data to market other uh, services to the participants, that's may or may not be appropriate. Right. Uh, and so, so, so I'm sorry, go ahead. Asset or, or something that's like it would be treated as a plan asset under that. Yeah, that's construct. that's the argument that's been made. And, you know, so far there haven't been very many cases that that uh, address this, although it, the <clears throat> the cases that have been filed are expanding. But 
the only decided case. Uh, a, a federal district court judge said, <clears throat> no, the participant data is not a plan asset. On the other hand, there have been a handful of settlements in which the uh, parties, uh, the, the, the plan providers have, have agreed, yes, it is a plan asset. So it's kind of up in the air as to whether it's a plan asset or not. But the, the point is still, I think, an important one. And that is, if there's value to the, the, the participant data to a service provider, because they're gonna take that data and market other services that are not related to the plan, presumably that has some value to the service provider and therefore the the uh, plan fiduciaries need to think about well gee if it's got some value should we negotiate a lower fee for for the services they're providing to the plan right uh, or conversely should we just say you can't use this data for any other purpose you you may only use it for plan purposes and i i don't have a um, you know, a, a view as to which one of those is the appropriate way to go, but it's an. It, it, uh, the point I'm trying to make is that it it is an issue that needs to be thought so about, be a, considered. A, a prudent plan sponsor should be asking questions. Of, you know, how much uh, uh, additional revenue are are you making uh, on our participants' data? Yeah, that's one one possible approach or saying to themselves, gee, you know, um, if I permit a service provider to offer other products or services, am I effectively kind of um, giving a tacit endorsement to those other products and services? And therefore, could I be held responsible if there's if if a participant has a problem with those other products and services, right. so given that that uh, concern, you know some some uh, fiduciaries have said, no, you can't use other participant use the participant data for anything outside of the plan. Uh, so it's you know the sort of those are the, seem to be the two choices. Either say right. yes, you can use it but you have to give us a break on costs or no, you can't use it at all. Sure. I mean, maybe there's some other ground, but I don't know what it is yet. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there, there are, there are all kinds of possibilities there. Well, so if, if litigation increased litigation uh, in this arena is, is an issue. Um, we've talked about a couple of things that, that uh, in our previous conversation about confusion, basically so one of the things we talked about was you know plans uh in the 457 world sometimes have in essence multiple plan documents um i suppose that's possible because it, it exists but what what are your thoughts about having multiple plan documents and, and and uh if you if you wanted to have just a single document how would you how would you do that well, I think you've, you've, you've raised a really good issue, and I think the word you used a, a, a minute ago uh, about this particular issue of multiple plan documents, the word you used was confusion. And that always worries me when I see a plan sponsor um, uh, have multiple documents because 
you then have to have you know some really good system for saying okay which document am, am i operating under for this group of employees or this particular employee right. and it it can be uh very confusing and lead to problems if you're looking at one document but another document controls so what i generally like to suggest is let's create a standard document that uh, is fairly general but then it creates the possibility of providing for different uh, benefit structures for different employees or different groups of employees and uh, that can be handled by way of a, uh, a document that is given by the the, the plan to a specific employee or is adopted for a group of employees that says, okay, here are the benefits that are gonna be uh, specifically offered to this group of employees. We're gonna have a match on deferrals, for example, or we're not gonna have a match, or the match is gonna be um, 100% uh, of deferrals up to 5% of pay, or it's gonna be some other formula. In other right. words, setting up different structures of that sort by having addenda to the plan or by having, you know, a separate document that references the plan with a given employee. So to me, that's a, 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 a safer way of approaching it. It sounds like the, the best way to do this is have a single document that is open enough to allow for uh, what you want in, in your plan. Yes. Okay. And so one other thing in, in this arena of, of ERISA that I've, I've seen that I'm, I'm anxious to hear your answer to. Uh, so I have seen sales practices, right, where, where people are, are actually even plan sponsors are, are saying, you know, we need to have a 338 uh, investment advisor on our 457 plan. So first of all, you and I both know 338 is an investment manager, not an investment advisor. That applies to a different part of the of the, the rules. Um, and 338 is an ERISA concept. Right. I think what people are asking for is a discretionary investment advisor, but they're calling it a 338. Does that create um, potential uh, liability for either the sponsor or the uh, investment advisor or whoever is doing that. Yeah, let me let me give just a little bit more background on when we when we talk about 338. There's a provision of ERISA that applies to plans that are subject to ERISA but obviously not to governmental 457 plans. And that provision says that banks, insurance companies, or registered investment advisors uh, can um, serve as a discretionary investment manager of the assets of, of a plan. And there's another part of ERISA that says if they do so, that removes responsibility from the, the main fiduciaries of the plan. It shifts the responsibility for the selection of investments over to this uh, 338 investment manager. So I think that's what people are looking for in the context of a governmental 457 plan. It doesn't bother me particularly to use the term 338 as long as people understand 
what it's referring to, and it, what it's referring to is a a, a uh, uh, investment advisor that is given discretion over plan assets. And strictly speaking, that isn't uh, something that's um, uh, provided for in the California law. On the other hand, it strikes me that it can be made to work, but it means that the uh, governing body of the 457 plan in exercising their fiduciary responsibility to act prudently has a little bit more of an obligation. In, in the ERISA context, what, what um, happens is the, the obligation to select and monitor, prudently select and monitor investments is shifted over to the investment manager, the discretionary investment manager. Um, and that could be done by way of contract in a 457 plan, but I would want to make sure that the governing body does two things. First, they have to, you know, really vet, um, that is, look at the credentials, look at the uh, how this firm has operated, uh, how other people have reacted to the firm. Does it get good uh, references or does anybody have anything bad to say about them? So right. go through a, a thorough vetting process for that discretionary uh, investment advisor. But also, I think they're going to need to take on more of an obligation to look at okay, what investments is this um, a discretionary investment uh, manager uh, selecting? And right. um, do, do a more in-depth monitoring process of those investment choices than would be required if it were an ERISA plan. Well, fiduciary duty in California is clearly uh, something for plan sponsors to pay attention to. And Recent litigation is also something that needs to be uh, clearly paid attention to. So, Bruce, we thank you very much for your insights. As always, we really appreciate uh, you listening to Verity Shares. If you want more information or want to contact Bruce or me, you can reach us uh, at the email or phone numbers below. I'm Al Otto for Verity Shares. Have a great day.